Would you take your Bibles out and turn with me to Revelation 11. God delivers his servants. God delivers his servants. Time it's all said and done today, there'll be quite a number of very practical application points that we will see that uh, run parallel with our own lives. And I've tried to list these out for you in your sermon notes page. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were uh, terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Father, we are so grateful for the fact and comforted by the fact that in the midst of some of the darkest periods on the face of the earth, That you give a witness of your saving grace. And Lord it is a reminder to us that even now as we live in a culture that seems to be growing darker by the day. That we are to be bold witnesses for Christ. Lord we are to be found about your business with the assignment that you have given us to do. And help us to understand today that there is no better place to be, no safer place to be, than in the center of your will. 
And even if that should cost us, should it cost us life itself, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. God, we thank you for the message of Revelation that we win because Christ won there at the cross and the empty tomb. Father, I pray that you would open our understanding today to these words. And help us to remember that this is your love letter to your children. I think back once again to that blessing that John gave in Revelation 1 where you told John, Blessed are those who read and who hear and act upon the things written herein. Lord, this is a message to be lived out. Open our hearts today. Grant us understanding and encouragement in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, one of the marvelous truths that we see repeatedly in the word of God is that God has chosen to use men and women just like you and just like me. I think all the way back to the beginning of the Bible there in Genesis chapter 12 how God said to Abram, Abram, I want you to leave your father's country and your father's home and go to a new land and in that new land I am going to make a new nation out of you. And God used Abram. And of course through that event the Jewish nation developed and they were to be a light to the nations. But the point is that God used everyday men and women. I think of how God did the same with with Moses. There in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, Moses saw that burning bush and he turned aside. God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush and told him that he was to go back to Egypt and deliver God's people. God uses ordinary men and women just like you and just like me. And another thing we see related to this in the scripture is how God always sends us his messengers to tell us his truth and to preach his word. We see that God has always raised up prophets. In 2 Kings 17 the Bible says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you through my servants, the prophets. And then in 2 Chronicles 36, the Bible says, And the Lord, the God of our fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. God's always raised up prophets. 
Now what we see today is uh, during this time in the future at the earth's darkest hour, God will again raise up two very exceptional prophets to be his messengers. And they'll proclaim the gospel during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, uh, also known as the Great Tribulation. Now let's remember what Jesus said about that time period. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor shall be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. And so during that time of horrific divine judgments, that we've been reading about. And hordes of demons working their evil and wickedness abounding. The gospel preaching of these two witnesses along with the testimony of the 144,000 will be a final expression of God's grace offered to sinners. Now we'll see today the powerful testimony of these two witnesses and surprisingly we'll see the fact that their witness, their testimony was not received by most people but on the other hand surprisingly their witness was actually rejected. I want you to see with me, first of all today, the temple of God. Read with me again in verse 1. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now John, once again, as we've already seen in the book of Revelation, becomes a player. He becomes a participant in the unfolding divine drama. John is given a command. He's told to rise up and take this reed and measure off the temple. Now as he's commanded to take this reed, the word is kalamos. It's a measuring stick. It was a reed-like plant that grew in the Jordan Valley. It was hollow, it was lightweight, it could grow to be about 20 feet tall. Sometimes they were cut down and used as walking sticks. Sometimes they were cut down when they were just little baby sprouts and they were carved and they were turned in to writing instruments that could be dipped in ink. Now if you were to think of bamboo today, you would have in your mind a picture of what these reeds look like. And they had a lot of different applications in the ancient world. Well John is given such a reed and he's told to take it and to use it as a measuring rod. Now what's the point in this? Well the point could be twofold. On the one hand, it could be that John is to measure out what is to be destroyed by God. He is to measure out the temple, but Jesus fulfilled the symbols 
of the Old Testament temple. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. We don't go to God through a priest other than Jesus, of course. He's our new high priest. Here's a temple being described during the tribulation period and it is unacceptable to God. And so it could be that John is being told to measure it off for destruction. But now on the other hand, some believe that he's measuring off to symbolize God's ownership, God's possession, and to show us once again that God is not done with the Jew yet. We've seen that in Romans chapter 11. And so John is to measure off the temple whether it's for destruction or preservation. Now throughout today's message I'm going to give you some application points where this ties in with us today and here is one of those. We need to understand that God measures our worship. Our worship is fully known to God. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4? He said there that the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Ladies and gentlemen, God knows exactly what is in your heart. He knows exactly what is in my heart as we gather here today for worship. You might have a cold heart. You might have a heart that's just going through the motions. You might have a heart that is coming here today heavy with a deep burden because of something you're going through in your life. You and I can take comfort by the fact that God knows exactly what we're going through. God knows our heart. He knows the condition of those who gather to worship. And that ought to be a call to us to examine our hearts as we go before God. Now, second lesson is that God knows those who are His. I think of that great passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Jesus said, I give to them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. In fact, the New Testament tells us that God even knows the very hairs on our head and has them all numbered. Folks, don't ever forget that God knows you. Often we go through trials in life and sometimes we wonder if God really cares or if God knows us. And the Bible assures us beyond a shadow of a doubt that indeed He does. And let me caution you to never go by feelings on this. The promise of God is that He is watching over His children. Folks, we watch over our children and we have compassion on them. Do you think our Heavenly Father is going to do less with us? Certainly not. We may not understand what we're going through at the time, but we can take great comfort in knowing that God is there. The Apostle Paul didn't understand why he was experiencing that thorn in the flesh, but God assured him that he was there and God was going to teach him some lessons through that. In Romans 8, the Bible even says that in our deepest moments of darkness, the Holy Spirit is there and He is making intercession 
for us. God knows us. Well, getting back to the flow of the narrative here, there have actually been several temples that the Jews have had. When we read about a temple here, the first thing that obviously probably comes to your mind is Solomon's temple. We know that his dad, David, wanted to be the one to build the temple, but God wouldn't allow David to. And God said to David, it's your son that is going to build me a house. And Solomon did that. And in the early chapters of the book of 2 Chronicles, we, we read about that glorious dedication of the first temple and how God's glory moved into that temple and God promised His people that whenever they gathered there to worship Him, He would be attentive to their prayers. Well, that temple was destroyed uh, when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came in and invaded the land. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And they deported a number of the people of Judah off to Babylon for the 70 year exile. All of that began in 605 BC. There were actually three different deportations. And you'll recall that Daniel was taken in one of those deportations in the first one. Daniel along with some of the other prime young people of Judah were taken there. But again, the point I'm making is that temple was destroyed. Now, after the 70-year exile, the Jews were given the decree to be able to go back home and rebuild the temple. And so they did so under Zerubbabel. And you'll remember there that some of the old-timers were grieved by that second temple that they saw because it didn't have the same glory of Solomon's temple. And God said, don't worry about the outer appearance of the temple. That's not what matters. Just know that I'm going to move into that temple too and, and I'm, I'm going to be glorified there so much so that you won't even remember the glory of the first temple. Well that temple takes us all the way down to the intertestamental times and we know that that temple too was badly destroyed. And then Herod rebuilt the temple for the Jews and it was a magnificent piece of architecture. Herod's temple was the temple that was in existence during the time of Jesus. But here again in 70 AD that temple was destroyed. The Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And since that time, there has been no temple. In fact, the New Testament says we, as the people of God, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But folks, it appears that there's going to be yet another physical temple, the one that will exist during the tribulation period. Listen to Daniel 9 verse 26. It says, After the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now that's the... That's the prophecy of the temple that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. 
But then the very next verse in Daniel 9, verse 27, fast forwards to the end of time, to the seven year tribulation. And Daniel says, and he, that is the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you see evidently there's going to be a rebuilt temple and even the sacrificial system's going to be reinstituted. Daniel 12 says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Now during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, whose reign was between the Old and the New Testament. He committed the abomination that causes desolation, which led to the Maccabean revolt. All of that, of course, was before the time of Christ. But the Bible points out that that was a foretaste, was a glimpse of yet a future abomination that causes desolation. Jesus spoke of that in Matthew 24. There's going to be a new abomination that causes desolation. Paul also speaks of that in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says there that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will take his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as God. So evidently, there's going to be yet another temple. The book of Ezekiel talks about another temple that will be during the millennial reign. Now today we know of course that the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem sits where the, where the temple was. The Dome of the Rock is an Islamic site. It's sacred for them. They believe it's where their prophet Muhammad uh, ascended to heaven. Now with the political climate in the world today and in the Middle East in particular, if the Jews were to try to take back that Temple Mount now, we would have nothing short of World War III. But during the tribulation under the protection of Antichrist who according to Daniel is going to make a covenant with the Jews, they're going to rebuild their temple there. In fact, they have all the supplies gathered together. They're ready to go with that. The president of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas has been given a tour of their warehouses and all of their supplies. They're sitting on go right now. They've got everything together. They're ready to build the next temple. And supposedly there's even room next door to the Dome of the Rock which would still be there on the Temple Mount. I want to tell you what I think is going to happen. And this is pure speculation on my, uh, on my part. I may be 100% wrong on this. But I think the Antichrist is going to convince the Arab world that if they want part of Israel for a Palestinian state, 
then they're sort of going to have to meet the Jews halfway and they're going to have to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple the way the Jews want to. Now Antichrist is going to convince the world in today's current ecumenical climate where different religions, we're told everybody's just got to get along and so they're going to be told, the Muslims are going to be told, hey now that's, that's a fair exchange. You want a state, they want a temple. And so they're going to rebuild the temple. Keep in mind that could only be done in a few short months. And they're going to reinstitute the sacrificial system. And in the middle of the tribulation, world sentiment is suddenly going to flip-flop. It's going to turn against the Jews. And the Antichrist will back down on that treaty that he brokered. And then there will be the new abomination that causes Desolation when the newly rebuilt temple is desecrated by some means. But God marks out for ownership those who were His. Now John, as he measured with this reed, he was told to omit the court of the Gentiles. We know in Old Testament times the Gentiles were not allowed to enter the courtyard containing the brazen altar. Now in fact if you'll remember in Acts 21 there was a false charge against the Apostle Paul that sparked a riot and led to his arrest. He was falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple and defiling it. Now this brings up a question. Why the distinction here in Revelation between Jew and Gentile? Well, it makes perfect sense, folks, if the church has already been removed. You see, the book of Ephesians talks about how in the church, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. But if the church has been raptured out of here and we're mainly dealing with Israel in this part of Revelation, then the distinction here makes perfect sense. The the focus here, remember, has been mainly on the Jew being saved during the tribulation. John goes on to tell us here that the Gentiles who are excluded are those who worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast. He says here they'll trample underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Oftentimes in the past Jerusalem has been trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. By the Babylonians first and then by the Romans. But they've not seen anything yet which is going to happen the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And during this time, according to Revelation 12, verse 6, God is going to shelter many of the Jews out in the wilderness. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24, that you need to come down off the rooftops and flee out into the wilderness when all these things begin to take place. Those who remain in the city will face the wrath of Antichrist. Now that's where these two witnesses or these two messengers come on the scene for three and a half years or 42 months. At the end of 42 months, Christ returns. He destroys the Antichrist and his forces. He judges the nations and he establishes the thousand year millennial reign. 
And so despite the efforts of the Antichrist, God's going to measure off Israel to save, preserve, and protect a remnant that is. Zechariah 13 talks about that. It says that two-thirds of Israel will be purged in judgment and one-third will be saved and enter into the glory of the millennium. Now, instrumental in the conversion of Jews will be these two witnesses. And so let's look now at the two witnesses uh, from God that begin here in verse 3 and go down through verse 14. Now, it's interesting that the word for witness here is martyr, signifying that a witness is oftentimes a martyr, somebody who gives their very life for the sake of the gospel. Now who are these two witnesses? They're not named And because they're not named That of course has brought on a lot of speculation And opinions very greatly on this Some simply spiritualize these two They say that these two are the two covenants The Old Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament Or some say that they're law and grace. And so they spiritualize these two witnesses. I don't. From a natural reading of the text, it seems like they're two distinct personalities. Now those who agree that there are people list Moses, Elijah, Enoch, and John the Baptist as some of the most likely. I would lean towards Moses and Elijah or at least men who come in the spirit of Moses and Elijah. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration who showed up there? Who was speaking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah were there. Now the actions of these two witnesses do indeed remind us of Moses and Elijah. First of all I want us to look at their ministry. Uh, Look here at at verse 4. It says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And look back up at the end of verse 3. It says, They will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so the duration of their ministry is 42 months. They'll prophesy this three and a half years during the same time that the holy city is being trodden underfoot. Now what do you think their message is going to be? It's going to no doubt be twofold. First they're going to be preaching judgment. They're going to explain that everything that is happening is the result of mankind's sin and of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And secondly I think they're going to be preaching to the Jews about how Jesus is their Messiah. And they're going to be pointing out salvation through Christ alone. We see the dedica- their dedication in verse 4. It describes them as two olive trees and lampstands. They give a spirit-empowered witness or a spirit-empowered light to a lost world. Now folks, here's another application point for us today. We're to be like these men in that regard. A spirit-empowered witness. 
Who's the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. And we're told in, in Matthew 5 that Jesus said to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth and you're what? You're the light of the world. We give a reflection of the one who is the light of the world. We're to point people to Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Folks, that is the commission that we have been given. We've been given the commission to go into all the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything uh, that God has commanded us to teach. And He promised us there that He's with us to the ends of the age. We're to carry out our ministry, not simply in the words of men, but in the power of the Spirit. Remember what Paul said about this to the Corinthians? He says, I didn't come to you in the wisdom of men, but simply in the power of the Spirit, preaching to you the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Folks, that is exactly how you and I are to be in that regard. We're to be like these two witnesses. And we're to understand that the most important thing about our lives... Not our education or who we are. You know, like Adrian Rogers used to say, say some you, you didn't even make who's who in America. You, you didn't even make who's not in America. But yet, you can be somebody in God's kingdom. You can make your life available to God and, and be a witness to God. And in the simplicity of the power of the Spirit, you can be a witness. That's how we're to be. That's how these witnesses were. And still another lesson here is that we're going to be around as long as God has a purpose for us. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. God had a purpose for these two men and nothing could harm them until God was done with them. You remember what King David said in Psalm 139? He said, God, you know all of my days before I live, even one of them. God knows all of our days. And as long as God's got a purpose in us accomplishing something and we're about the master's business, that's the safest place to be on the face of the earth. It's right dead center of God's will. Now in verses 5 and 6 we see the devastation of their ministry. We see all these, these miracles that they call down from heaven. And what is the point of these miracles? The point of these miracles is that men would see these miracles and believe. And that they would understand that this judgment is from God. Why did Jesus do miracles? The Gospel of John is very plain on that. That the miracles he did, were to, people weren't to be miracle chasers, but they were to look beyond the miracles and see that only God can do these things. And so the miracles were to be a witness. That's what they're doing here. Now look in verses 7 and 8 at their martyrdom. It says, And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Again, while they will be hated, nobody will be able to harm them until their work is done. Verse 7 says their work is complete and so they were killed. 
Now here's another lesson we need to understand. Serving God is is no guarantee that we'll not suffer. Folks, where in the world did Christians get the attitude from that, that nothing bad ever happens to believers? Some preachers preach, you know, if you're a believer, you're not ever supposed to be sick. You're not supposed to be poor. If you're sick or poor, you don't have enough faith, brother. That's not what the Bible says. I mean, just think about how Job suffered. These two witnesses, when God was done with them, he allowed them to to be martyred. They suffered. They died. They were killed. The Antichrist kills them. And we're told here, he comes from the bottomless pit, the Antichrist. In other words, he's a man possessed by the devil. And they're, they're refused burial. You see, the Antichrist, he's a lawless man. Even Pilate, a man wretched as he was, allowed the body of Jesus to be taken off the cross and buried. But the Antichrist won't have any sense of decency. And their bodies are allowed to lie in the streets of Jerusalem described as Sodom and Egypt to show that they've become no better than those two wicked places. And we're told that those all over the world are able to see all this going on. Years ago we didn't know how that would happen. Today we do, don't we? We see snapshots and pictures and video from all over the world. Aha, this makes sense now. And why were they killed? They were killed simply for being God's servants and preaching the word of God. It says here at the end of verse 10 that they had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Folks, some people despise the word of God. They despise preaching. And so they despise preachers. All preachers try to do is tell tell people what the Bible says. But like James Merritt said on one occasion, if you're a preacher, you had either better duck or pucker up. Some people are going to want to hit you and some people are going to want to kiss you. But he said, oh, you better beware of that crowd that wants to kiss you because by next week they might be the crowd also wanting to hit you. I tell you what, it is amazing the way the world, the world right here turns on these two witnesses. And you see what's happening even beginning today in this climate. Have you been reading about the controversy going on over First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas and Tim Tebow? Have you been reading about that? The pastor there, Robert Jeffress... I mean, from what I can tell, one of the most dedicated men of God you'd ever want to meet in your life. And because that's such a historic church, when the media looks for a pastor to interview, they're going and and grabbing a hold of of Dr. Robert Jeffries there and they're doing interviews with him. And again, such such a faithful preacher. Lately, he's come out. They, they ask him, what about all this same-sex marriage stuff going on? And all uh, Jeffress said is what the Word of God says. Marriage is to be between a man and a woman. Uh, 
they asked him about the gays and AIDS and all that kind of stuff. You know what he did? He, he basically quoted Mark Foreman. Mark Foreman, a leader in the gay and lesbian uh, group that they recently, they had a meeting up in Detroit, Michigan. And Mark Foreman said to the gays and lesbians there, he said to them, he said, Listen folks, it's time that in our community we own up to the fact that by and large... AIDS is a gay disease. Now this is Mark Foreman, one of their leaders. He said, studies show that about 70% of the cases can be directly tied to the behavior that we're engaged in. Well, he said that a leader among them. Dr. Robert Jeffries basically just echoed that. Woo boy, the world has jumped on him. They've asked him about, well, who's going to be saved? It, only, only those who believe in Jesus? Jeffrey said, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, I mean, Robert Jeffries has now, you ought to read some of the blogosphere going on. He is now the pastor that America loves to hate. And all he's done is simply answer their questions, be faithful to the preaching of God's Word. Just this week, Mac Brunson at First Baptist Church, uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, he came out and said, look, the, uh, Pastor Jeffries is only saying what historic Christianity has always believed. Tim Tebow called him up, uh, First Baptist Dallas getting ready to move into a new $130 million church campus. And for their opening dedication services, Tim Tebow was to be the speaker. Well, everybody, the CBS sports writer jumped on Tim Tebow for going to that. You're going to that hate-filled church with that hate-monger pastor. And blah, blah, blah. So Tim Tebow called Robert Jeffries and said, I don't need any more controversy in my life right now. I'm canceling my speaking engagement there. But boy, you just... Folks... The reason I bring that up, you just look at the climate today that's going on. And it's kind of an indicator of where we're going in the country. That if you're a Christian who simply believes the Word of God, you're going to be called all sorts of names and ugly, ugly, ugly things said about you. And that's what they were doing about these two witnesses here. And, and they turned on them and they killed them. And I want you to notice once they were, their dead bodies were lying in the street in verses 9 and 10. What are they doing? The world is sending gifts to one another. It's like the devil's Christmas. They're happy celebrating that these two guys are dead. But oh, that's not the end of the story. Let's see thirdly their metamorphosis. Look at, look at what it says here. But after the three and a half days a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. They're resurrected. They're raised to life and raptured. Two lessons here. God's purposes prevail. Don't you ever forget who wins. God wins. And then secondly, don't you ever lose your confidence in standing up for the Word of God. 
Here the world has been celebrating. The world naturally thinks everything's over. These guys tormented us with their preaching, but they're dead. They think it's over. But who had the final say? God did. God called them home. Can you imagine what it was like when all of a sudden life came into these fellas? And they stood back up. Reminds me of a joke I read this week about an old boy. He worked second shift in a factory. Got off at 11 o'clock at night, walked home. And he always took the, the long path because shortcut was through the city cemetery. And he was scared to death. He was superstitious. No lights and boy, it's pitch black dark. One night he was so dog tired though, he decided he was going to let his superstitions aside, cut through the cemetery. He cut through the cemetery and again, it's so dark you couldn't see the hand in front of your face. He didn't know that grave diggers had been in there and dug a grave for a funeral the next day. And the grave diggers didn't cover the grave. He falls in. Well, unknown to him, an old drunk had earlier that night fall in, crawled to the back corner of the grave, just passed out. Well, this factory worker falls in, and he doesn't know that drunk's there, and he's, he's busy trying to climb out of that grave, and he's sticking it. He's trying to make little indentions for his foot and his hands, and every time he tries to pull himself up, the, the dirt on the inside wall just kind of collapses, and he keeps going back down. He can't get out. Well, in all the commotion, this drunk wakes up. He stands up, puts his hand on the shoulder of this factory worker. <laughs> Says, sir, just sit down and relax. You ain't going to get out of here. But he did. <laughs> well, these two guys come to life and the world is scared to death. And no wonder God calls these two servants up. Folks, God rewards faithfulness. That's another lesson here. The Bible says we're to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Folks, we reward faithfulness. Do we think that God's not going to do a better job than we do at rewarding faithfulness? Of course God rewards faithfulness. Then after they're taken home to glory, notice all the destruction. Everything that happens here. Some come to faith, some don't. Isn't it amazing that with all this going on, there will still be those in the world who will not come to Jesus Christ. If you go to hell, you're going to have to sidestep the grace and mercy of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? I want to ask you today to recommit your life to wholehearted worship. Remember, God knows your heart. Give God your best. Such a privilege. Such a privilege that we can gather and worship God. Recommit yourself today to worship. If you don't know Christ, come to Christ today so you'll be able to worship. You see, Romans 5.1 makes it clear that it is only through coming to Christ and being justified by faith that we have peace with God 
And we have reconciliation with God. If you don't know Christ, you can't really worship. Come to Christ. Understand also today that God knows you intimately. If you're His child, He's certainly not forgotten about you. You might be going through a difficult period. You're wondering if God is there. Yes, God is there. He's not forgotten you. Take great encouragement and comfort from that. And commit your way to Him. And finally, recommit yourself to whatever part of God's business that He's called you to. Has God laid something on your heart that you know you need to be doing some way? You need to be serving? Be faithful in that the way these two witnesses were. Be a shining light. As Romans 12, 1 says, Make your life that living sacrifice. Serve Him with everything you've got. It will not be in vain. Father, speak to your people today. May your Holy Spirit be at work on the hearts of men and women, simply leading them to make whatever decisions that you know they need to make. In Jesus' name we pray.